you will turn with me once more in your copies of God's Word as we turn to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. We are heading to the end of our journey through the pastoral epistles. Just to let you know from there, it was decided by your session to journey through the Gospel of Luke and Acts. Luke and Acts are both written by Luke. Luke Acts is just the Gospel. It's the second part of Luke. Uh, so there is a first letter that was written to a man named Theophilus uh, from Luke to Theophilus. That was the first letter is the Gospel of Luke. The second letter to Theophilus is the book of Acts. So that's, that's the way you can you have to look at it. Luke and Acts are actually one, one book in two parts. But here um, we are heading towards the end of this powerful, powerful letter from Paul to his protege, Timothy, his young protege. And as we have no doubt seen as we journey through this epistle, Paul is about to die. Uh, he knows that he is about to go to a Roman tribunal and he is about to uh, go to his death. And as tradition tells us, he was beheaded. He knows that this is about to take place and he exhorts Timothy throughout this epistle uh, first and foremost, to be ready for a number of things, but more specifically and climactically, to make sure Timothy is in season, out of season, doesn't matter where, whether, it, whether it seems convenient or not, no matter how much fire he's going to get from it, Timothy needs to preach the word. And he needs to realize that there are people that aren't going to want to listen, but he needs to be patient, he needs to teach, he needs to be willing to suffer, and he needs to be complete his ministry. Paul, in his last letter that we have from him in anticipation for his death, he is completely invested in the tradition of the gospel that is, that is being passed down from him to Timothy and that has been passed, out, passed down for the centuries since. Now we come to the close of this letter when he makes a few uh, requests, and one of them it seems like an urgent request but we will read uh, this portion of, the, of, of this letter together. We'll be reading from verses 9 through verse 18. So if you will stand with me, uh, if you're able, out of respect for God's word, as we read. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. 
So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, now as we approach your word, we pray, Lord God, that you would speak to us, Lord, that we would see Christ in all his glory. And that through our feeding of him, through the hearing, preaching of your word, Lord God, that you would speak to us and encourage us and strengthen us. May we feed on Christ this morning so that we may more and more grow in the grace and knowledge of him and be conformed into him more and more. We pray this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. One of the unfortunate realities that happen, and this this happens to a person in the church, out the church, it really doesn't matter, is that when a person has been rejected from the world, and when that person is getting heated fire, even pursuing something good, uh, people tend to abandon them. When the going gets tough, for that one particular person, and, and for, for, for this in the, in the matter of Paul, Paul is about to die. He's getting persecuted. And so now many people, understandably so, sense that there is a danger with being affiliated with this man. And instead of willingly stepping into this danger, this persecution, and trying, seeking to encourage Paul and be with him during what is going to seem to be the most difficult time of his life, in anticipation in which he knows that he is about to die. This is some information that many of us can't handle. What if you knew for sure two weeks from now you're going to be dead? How would you react? Would you want to be by yourself? I certainly doubt it. I, I certainly think that you would want as much of your loved ones around you as possible. I'm sure that's what would be the case. But in a situation like Paul's, Paul, it, it, to be around him becomes eminently dangerous. And they just don't want a part of it. And so a lot of them just abandon them. It just happened with Jesus Christ. And, and many times this happens in our most desperate hour of need. This is the reason why I, I really exhort all of you, when, when there is somebody not here, when they're being pushed away because of some sort of health issue or something like that, you can think of our dear Phyllis. Don't, don't, don't just peel away and say, well, she's not here, and just don't talk and go into your lives. People need fellowship. So the reason why it's so critical for you to come and gather for worship. This is the reason why it's we practice something like a agape meal. So we rightly call it a fellowship meal. A meal in which we come together, fellowship with each other, encourage one another, be with one another. Because there is something about being with people. Visiting each other, going to each other's houses, practicing hospitality among, among yourselves. Because in that way, that sort of fellowship breeds encouragement, breeds unity. 
breeds love and compassion. And in that, you share your compassion of Jesus Christ with one another. But folks, when it gets really, really difficult is when times get rough. You seem to want to sink into yourself and, and get self-protective and say, oh. and this is unfortunately what happens in the situation with Paul. It becomes very dangerous to be around him. At least that's what's perceived by many of the people here, at least for Demas. But here, what we see is this idea, even when Jesus Christ was in his desperate hour, right? When he was getting betrayed, what did the disciples do? They left. The disciples who loved him. And we read in John chapter 16, Jesus knew that his disciples were going to abandon him. And he even told him, you're going to abandon him. He told Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter denied that. But of course, Jesus was correct. Completely abandoned. And yet, there is an elusiveness to the loneliness. Because we read from Jesus' own words in the end of John chapter 16, yet he is not alone because the Father is with him. You're going to see a lot of parallels between the circumstances of Jesus Christ himself proclaiming that he is abandoned, wanting, crying out in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's praying, begging these disciples to pray with him, and they're tired, so they go to sleep. So he's left all by himself, yet he is never alone because the Father is with him. You're going to see a lot of parallels between that situation and what Paul is dealing with right here. And what you are seeing is no less Paul acting in unison, in unity with his Savior. You're going to see a lot of parallels. And would it be that our life, our life, would really be patterned after Jesus Christ? That we would never, ever perceive that we are ever alone because the Father is always with us. It's one of the key things that I would say in John chapter 16, as you look at it, is, it, it, is, is the disciples, he tells the disciples, you have never asked the Father in my name. You have never asked me, you asked me, but you never asked the Father in my name. And he tells the disciples, you're not going to have to ask me. You're going to ask me nothing. You're going to go directly to the Father in my name. Of course, this is where the Roman Catholics get it wrong. In which then somehow God is so distant that you have, to, you have to pray to this person, this person, this person, this person, and this person so that they can go to God. But what does Jesus say? It's your father. You go directly to him on my name because that father will always be with you. Always. You will never be alone. And Paul senses this in this text. But even so, there is an urgent call for fellowship. There is within a human heart just as Jesus desired the disciples to be with him as he prayed in Gethsemane, Paul desires fellowship. Look at this text. First, you see an urgent call for fellowship. We're taking notes that Sorum and Numeral 1. An urgent call for fellowship. Paul says in verse 9, Do your best to come to me soon. Do your best to come to me soon. It's somewhat of a, almost like a desperate move. Strive to come to me quickly is what it literally says try to come to me quickly the do your best in the soon it is it is a cry that timothy be zealous there's a zealousness 
to his attempt to get to Paul. He's asking Timothy to do it, to do it as soon as he can. Timothy, by, by now, is probably a couple weeks' journey away. Um, and so Paul is, is asking Timothy to figure how slow things moved at that point. This letter, he writes the letter. The letter has to get to Timothy. Timothy has to read it, and Timothy has to make his journey back. The time moved very slowly at that time. This is not the time of Twitter and fast feeds and internet uh, cars and planes. This is the time of ships, horses, letters. But Paul gives a reason for this. And notice what the reason is. It, the reason is the pain of loneliness. He says in our text that Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Uh, Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, and that Luke alone is left to be with him. Paul has been deserted by one or more of his friends. Now, there's some idea of whether Cretans and Titus were sent away uh, based out of need. Uh, we went through this epistle of Titus. Titus was, again, an assistant for Paul. Uh, we can assume that Cretans was also an assistant as well. But those two went, uh, those two went away. Uh, we don't know if they just abandoned Paul or as if they were sent. But the, what's clear here is that Paul has been left and there's only one person with him, Luke. Luke, the physician. Luke, the author that we know to be the author of both the Gospel of Luke and Acts. He is the physician and um, he is the one alone who remains with Paul. So there's a need that Paul senses for fellowship in the time of his darkest hour. He is crying for his friends. He's crying for his disciples, I guess you would say. And so back, Paul asked Timothy to bring Mark along with him. We see that in verse 11. Mark, uh, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Very interesting um, that Paul sets the reason that Mark is very useful to Paul in the service of ministry. Because early in the book of Acts, what we find is that... Um, Paul and Mark got into an argument over who to go with because people were, you know, were, were trying to please the Judaizers um, in saying circumcision. And when Gentiles came along, these people kind of sank back. And Mark, you know, wanted to, was one of those people that wanted to stick with that crew, the, the crew that sank back. But apparently he's noticed by this point that relationship has been, um, has been restored. And, and even when he says in the end of his life, look at how he describes Mark. He is very useful to me for his ministry. Useful. That's the reason why he wants Mark to come along with Timothy. How things have changed and how peace should be sought between believers. Believers in Jesus Christ. Remember, our goal is the unity of the bond of faith. If there is any conflict with any one of us, we should seek restoration with that person. That person. Not to seek to, to divide and, and gossip and complain to other people about what's going on. That time, If there is an issue with a person, to seek restoration with that person. Apparently, restoration has been, has been attained here with Mark. And now to the point where Mark has become very, very useful to Paul. Uh, wouldn't that hope be that each and every one of us here is very useful to each other for our own respective ministries? 
should be helping one another for that. You have a, a situation and maybe you have a family member or, 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 a, or, or a neighbor in which you're all visiting each other and encouraging one another and helping one another and, and, and communicating to neighbors and to friends and to family members about Christ and showing them the love of Christ to each and every one of us. Um, this is the idea of fellowship. You know, fellowship should not be just on a Sunday in a fellowship meal. You guys should be visiting each other uh, all the time. You guys are a family. You're supposed to treat yourself as such. Now, this doesn't mean that other churches should be neglected, uh, which is the reason why Paul sends Tychicus to Ephesus in verse 12. Um, Ephesus was in need of elders. Uh, I believe at this point... Um, it may be, and I'm, I'm not sure because the letter doesn't intimate it, maybe that Timothy was in Ephesus. And in order to make sure that that church was not left without leadership, he would send Tychicus over to help uh, Paul. But the, this idea of the loneliness must never come, must never come in contravention or in spite of to hurt the church. But fellowship should be sought and the well-being of all God's people. And the spread of his kingdom should be sought as well. And so there, there is a desire for physical and spiritual comfort. Spiritual and physical comfort. This was known to be the time when winter was approaching. Look at our text. Verse 13. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all, the parchments. This is winter time. So... Of course, he needs physical comfort as well. This is something that our deacons do by making sure in leadership, the deacons, what their job is, is to rustle up all the provisions of the congregation to come together. If there's any sort of physical need or comfort that is needed from anyone suffering within the congregation, we need to make sure that no one in the congregation is left in need, in physical need. And so that's what the deacons do is they call upon, they're not to do the job themselves, they are to call upon you, the congregation, so that you can provide then the physical sustenance for uh, all the uh, members, for a member of the church who might be suffering. And this is the reason why we take the deacon's offering, because a lot of times that takes money. This is why you provided meals, uh, for instance, for Phyllis, to provide some sort of sustenance for her so that she could eat good food and, and be sustained and be nourished through a very difficult time. But also, this is very interesting. In spiritual needs, he asks for the books and parchments. He wants to read. The word for book here is biblia, the book. Um, I don't know if it means he actually wants the Bible. Probably does. But he certainly wants parchments, books, theological treatises so he can study God's word. And I want you to think about this. He's about to die. And this is the primary way that a person in the twilight of their lives prepares to go to glory by reading scripture and worshiping God. You see, the world would look at Paul and say, why are you reading this? You're going to die. It's going to be over. But Paul's response would be. No. I am preparing myself to depart this world and to go into the real heavenly worship service in heaven. I am preparing my spirit, my soul, to enter into glory. I'll tell you, the closer you get to the end of your lives here on earth, here on earth, okay, the more important and relevant 
you should view the Bible more relevant than ever. The closer you get to heaven, the more relevant, the more important Bible, the Bible, theology, studying God, studying who he is, studying about Jesus Christ and his kingdom, all that is involved in that, as you get closer and closer into the doorsteps of heaven, into the arms of your Savior, the Bible doesn't become less important, it becomes more important. It's understandable why Paul would seek Timothy to bring all those books and parchments. So the fellowship for believers in their last days should provide all the physical and spiritual comfort that can be provided. All of it. Spiritual, physical. By physical, I mean not just give them a bunch of money and give them some food. No, gathering with them, visiting with them. There's a reason why we tell you where Phyllis is in the hospital. <laughs> so you can go and visit, perhaps. Um, visit each other in your homes, especially those who are sick, maybe struggling. Of those, especially the ones who are older in our congregations, to be visiting them as well, not just the pastor and the elder, but the entire congregation, visiting one another and visiting especially those who might feel lonely, who are all alone. But you see, unfortunately here, as we see the second major point in this text, there is a strong tendency of desertion. There is a strong tendency of desertion. Follow me in my text here. Verse 14. We're going to read four, verse 14 as we go through 17. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. And then in verse 16, at my first events, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me may not be charged against them. So here we have an unfortunate reality in this world, especially for those who are knocking in the footsteps of death and danger, is that they tend to be deserted. The ones who, unfortunately, and this is unfortunately in this case, this, this neglect of the older among us, that they tend to be neglected. They're lonely because a lot of their friends and family members, their spouses maybe have gone have gone to be in glory, have died and, and passed away. Um, their family is there. Their younger ones don't support them as much. And they're very alone into themselves. There's this tendency, just kind of forget them. Um, now, some desertions, especially for Christians, comes about through active resistance. And that's what we see with Alexander the coppersmith. Um, he did Paul harm. We don't know what that specifically was. But it was evil perpetrated by him to harm Paul's ministry. Paul was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Alexander was trying to harm him. But Paul holds faith that the Lord would indeed have his vengeance. Look at, look at our text. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And notice Paul is not seeking vengeance of his own, is he? We should not seek our own vengeance. We should not seek to... Be hyper to defend ourselves and lash out on people when people do us harm. That harm deserve goes to the Lord. That's how we ought to operate. The Lord is the one who will give vengeance to Alexander the coppersmith. 
The Lord will give vengeance to his enemies. And so you are not to seek out and lash against your enemies or those that disagree with you or seek to harm you. You should seek to understand and seek the Lord's vengeance and have faith that the Lord will get his vengeance. Romans chapter 12, 19. It says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So Paul warns Timothy to beware of him because he strongly opposed the message of the gospel. Now, it is right. I know this has been an issue in the past. But folks, it is right for pastors to warn congregants of even specific people who have tried to push various types of unbelief. There, this church is no different from any other churches in having those types of issues. Large churches, small churches. It is right for pastors to warn congregants of even specific people, and Paul names specifically Alexander here, who resisted the faith of Jesus Christ. That when pastors do this many times, it is out of love for the church, not a seeking to destroy, but of love for the church and love for Christ specifically in his word. So be aware that these people will actually try to give a hurtful sense of loneliness by abandoning you. They will try to hurt you by saying, you're done, I'm out of here. They will abandon you. It's not just the pastor. They will abandon you. And you're abandoning you. If you're faithfully operating within God's word, they're abandoning Christ. Many have done this. Many in the past of this church, in the past of other churches, many have left. Not because the word is not faithfully preached, but because the word is faithfully preached. Yet, there is a reality that can never be thwarted. Now, some abandon out of mere fear, not out of active opposition and hatred. And to these people, we need to, we need to exercise mercy, patience, grace, encouragement, not to be afraid. We see that in verse 16. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. You, you notice the difference in the reaction here. A time when Paul is deserted by everyone, much like Jesus was deserted by all his disciples. You notice the prayer that Paul gives. May it not be charged against them. You can almost hear Jesus Christ hanging on a cross. Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's the same type of statement, is not May it not be charged against them. This is the heart of the Savior. Even as his own disciples fled him in his darkest hour. Jesus told his disciples they would do it. But Jesus still able to say that he was never alone. Forgive them. May the Lord not charge it against them. You understand that Jesus, just Jesus was pleading for those that he would die for. Even you, who in your heart many times have abandoned Christ. And he continues to intercede for you. This is where the wonderful reality of salvation is that your salvation is not dependent upon whether you do or do not desert Christ in your hearts. 
but based on the Jesus Christ who intercedes for you continuously and who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. My goodness, if our salvation was dependent upon our whims, we'd be doomed! But it's not. It's not. And Jesus cries out for you as you as your heart kind of ventures away, you still have faith in Jesus Christ. You still believe in his word. You still believe he is Lord. But you get distracted by the shiny things. And your heart pulls away and you abandon him. You just kind of veer off. And then Jesus says, Oh, Father, may it not be counted against them. May it not be counted against them. And then here we have this present reality. This is the reason why it will not be counted against you. It's the present reality. And it's verse 17. The Lord stood by me. And he is your strength. This is the reason why. This is the reason why you can, through the power of his spirit, the Lord who is with you will give you the strength to not look at the shiny things the Lord was standing by Paul provided and served as a means of strength even in his abandonment one of the things that we tend to do when things are going wrong or when we feel depressed or something like that is one of the things that we talked about last Wednesday in, in the book um, shame interrupted was that when shame happens and we get depressed, we tend to look at ourselves. I'm shameful. I'm terrible. Look at me. And, and Jesus yeah, died for me. And this is me. And uh, yeah, I, I had to understand what Jesus did for me. And, and, and this. But Ed Welch does something very, very interesting. What he says is, if you, if you have this idea of, well, well, I have to remember that Jesus died for me. For some reason, that doesn't work. Because in the end, where are your eyes at? It's in you. And this is significant as to how you must understand Paul. Paul's eyes were driven away from himself. They were driven away from his circumstances. They were driven toward Christ. The reason why he was able to deal with all these things is because he had an ever-present vision of his mind of the Lord who was with him. The Lord was with him. He strengthened him so that through the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. The strength to Follow through in the ministry was given by God. He knew it. His purpose in life was to proclaim the gospel. Now, the purpose here is given in a kind of a threefold message. And you see it there in verse seven, second half of verse 17. So that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. It's actually uh, divided in the Greek. It's divided in, in three. <clears throat> Verse 17. He empowered me in order that for me, the message, the preaching might be fulfilled. 
and the hearing of the Gentiles, and he might be delivered from the mouth of the lion. Three things. And they all build upon each other. Right? Stood by me, strengthened me. The message might be fully complained. Gentiles might hear it. And through that, rescued from the mouth of the lion. Threefold increasing, increasing result from all the ways in which the Lord would strengthen him. His eyes were fully on the work of Jesus Christ. When he said in another text, to live as Christ, to die as gain, he lived focused on that vision. And so he understood that the reason why he is there and the reason why he is dying is that threefold reason. Number one, that the gospel, the message might be fully proclaimed, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ must be proclaimed, period. Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh from the Father, came to earth, took on flesh, died, paid the penalty for sin, rose again for our justification, ascended on high, is ruling, entered his rest at the right hand of the Father, and is coming to judge the living and the dead. That gospel must be proclaimed. One. Two. Reason is that salvation must come, as your text says, to the Gentiles. Literally, to all the nations, to the entire world. You are a product of Paul's ministry. To the entire world, all the nations. Secondly, or thirdly, that Paul might be delivered by the lion's mouth. Now, many of you kids have heard of Daniel and the lion's den, right? That's what he's talking about. So he's borrowing that, that little event that happened with Daniel and the lion's den. And he's saying, the Lord is going to rescue me. He rescued me from the lion's mouth through his work. What in the world is Paul doing here? He is using an Old Testament story to reveal a spiritual truth. Satan is a warring lion who prowls around seeking whom he may devour. It is that lion that Paul is saved from. And how is Paul saved from that lion? Preaching the gospel. The gospel. Speaking Jesus Christ. You speak Jesus, you live Jesus, you are escaping the mouth of the lion. It is the gospel message which concerns the life, death, resurrection, rule, judgment of Jesus Christ that serves for the salvation of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, which then serves to be the means by which Paul is himself delivered. And this is the same for you. And so here is the concluding reality. This is the last major point. The concluding reality for Paul is this, and it's written in verse 18. The Lord will then rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The Lord will save. He will save Paul from every evil deed. Every evil deed. He will bring Paul safely into his heavenly kingdom. Safely into his heavenly kingdom. This is where 
But Paul states about this idea. One commentary said it's, this is the only time in the Old Testament where it's called a heavenly kingdom. And I think the reason why, and I agree with the commentator, I think the reason why Paul is saying this is because he's anticipating his death. He is recognizing that in his death, Paul will be brought through that death safely into the kingdom in the heavenly realm. Paul will be brought safely into that place. This is where the sting of death, what Jesus Christ does with the sting of death, he removes it and turns death from sting to gain. And this is what Paul is envisioning. Through that death, he's going to be brought in safely into his heavenly kingdom. Every evil deed from Paul, he will be saved from all of it. And it is for that reason that, in the, that this letter would be so amazingly confident, despite the fact that he is very clear he is about to die. Well, guess what, folks? This is true for everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. This is true for everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. The reality that Paul is looking for, he makes abundantly clear, this reality pertains to everybody who believes in Jesus Christ. The idea, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you have faith in him, if you are bonded to him in faith, then that reality is yours. And that's where you should be focused on. Your heavenly kingdom. This is the reason why Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, do not sink your eyes and do not seek purpose in the things of this world where, where it's fading away. But have your eyes focused in heaven where Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Why? Because when you focus on that, the importance of, of all these earthly things start to fade away. And you start to get a real keen sense of reality here. Again, I've said this before, I'll say it again. If you want to know how short and meaningless this life is here on earth, speak to some of the older ones in this congregation. When you go visit them, and you better, when you go visit them, ask them, how quick is life? How meaningful is all the garbage that we have to deal with in this world? And they will tell you, right, Myra? Nothing. It's worth nothing. Go on. You should be more worried about heaven. Because that's a lot, lot more lasting. 80 years, 90 years, flipping the radar. It's gone. You kids don't understand this right now because you've only been around for 10, 11, 12, 13 years, 8 years, 14 years, almost 14 years. Right? But for those of us who are older, we start knocking the footsteps of death. We start understanding, man, this life is really, really short and it's meaningless. Meaningless. Especially happens even for some of us young who have, who have gotten close to that idea of death. And then we begin to understand death can happen any time. We can go out in the road right now and get struck 100 miles an hour by a drunk driver and we're gone. Right? We're gone. But for a, for a believer in Jesus Christ, death means that we are brought safely into the arms of our Savior in heaven. And in the end, God is glorified. This is, this is where Paul goes on and says, To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the benediction that he lays upon himself. This is just a word of praise and conclusion to the great hope that he has, even in the face of death, that he knows is coming. 
The phrase forever and ever, it's a, it's a Greek idiom, literally reads, toward the ages of the ages. I think it's a beautiful phraseology there. The uniqueness about salvation that is revealed in the Bible, which is only through Jesus Christ, is that it is the only way of salvation which brings, listen, total, unflinching, complete, comprehensive glory to God and God alone. There is no other religion in the face of the earth that does it. It is, even when you look at the Bible and this, this idea of seeking death coming, people don't want to think of death. This world doesn't want to think of death, and the reason why they don't want to think of it, uh, they think of it as just natural occurrence, it's a part of life, and all this stuff like that. The reason why they try to poo poo it away is because they don't like the idea of it. They don't like the idea of ultimate. And they hang on to their own arrogance because they imagine a religion, even a Christian religion, that gives just a smidgen of credit. To me. If God is responsible for 99.99% of your salvation and you are responsible for 0.001, you're in hell. The reason why the gospel is what it is is because in the end, if God is to be truly God, then everything comes from God, everything goes through God, and everything goes to God, including your salvation. It must, because if it doesn't, God ceases to be God. By very definition, by very definition, a man has autonomous control over his own life, which is what man wants to believe. Somehow, they were going to heaven and say, but I provided just this much. And so you should accept me, God. God would say, you're lying to yourself. You're gone. I never knew you. You are denying my very godness in saying that. Because anything you have, including the air that you breathe, including the laws of science, including mathematics, everything that is in this world... If I am truly God, there is nothing in this universe, seen and unseen, which is not under my sovereign control. And if you don't like it, too bad. I'm God, you're not. But the glory of being a believer in Jesus Christ is that when you look at the gospel, you start to find... That when God gives you his spirit of salvation, you're able to see with the vision of Paul as you look into heaven. And when God says, I am the Lord God, I created you to enjoy and glorify me. That you now have the ability to go up and say, yes, I acknowledge salvation can only and ever be of the Lord. And because of that, I am able to glorify and enjoy you, my God, my creator, my sustainer. And you are the one that's going to bring me peacefully into the heavenly kingdom. I can't ascend there myself. And in that way, Paul says, to God, to him, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Is that your vision? Well, I certainly hope it is.
Let's pray. To you, God, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, even as we think about what Paul had gone through and think about what Jesus Christ has done for us, we, Lord God, even in our weakened state, consider that it is through your faithfulness that you will bring us into your heavenly kingdom safely. And we don't know when Jesus is returning, only you know. But Father, you have revealed what you wanted to reveal. You have concealed what you wanted to conceal. And you did it for your glory and our good, so that we might share in your holiness. And so, Father, we ask that even through all this, that you would conform us to the image of your Christ, work on your church, gather your believers from the four winds, even in this area. We pray, Lord God, in Jesus' name. Amen.